Now please take your Bibles and turn to the prophecy of Zephaniah. Zephaniah, and if you're not sure where Zephaniah is, just turn to Matthew and flip back a few pages. You'll probably land there pretty quickly. Zephaniah, chapter 2. And it was about a month ago that we began chapter 2 of Zephaniah. Glad to be back with you this evening and to be able to uh, pick up now in verse 8 and go to the end of the chapter. Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And again, let's listen carefully to this because it is the very Word of God. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations." You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. And that is the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless it to us now. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit will illumine its pages. He is the one who breathed these words out, and now we pray that he'd be our teacher as we consider them. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) So when we uh, began chapter 2, starting at verse 1, we saw an oracle of doom, and it was against the people of Philistia, the Philistines, long-time enemies of the nation of Israel. And if you're looking on a map, Philistia is down to the southwest of the territory of Judah. Now, as we come to verse 8 and following, we begin with an oracle of doom against Moab and then Ammon, and they are to the east. We've seen this kind of pattern before in other prophets where God declares judgment against nations surrounding Israel. 
or surrounding Judah. And what often comes after that is then God's condemnation and his rebuke against his own people. What we're going to see here is an expanding scope of judgment by the Lord God as he speaks against not only Israel's neighbors, but also all the nations, including the most powerful nations of the day and even the gods of the nations. As we continue on through chapter 2 of Zephaniah, we see that Jesus Christ, the King of kings, will subdue all nations to himself. And we'll see that in three points, and I believe they're printed in your bulletin. First of all, the Lord humbles the pride of Israel's neighbors. That's going to be Moab and Ammon. But also the Lord is able to humble the pride of the superpowers of the day. And then finally, all gods and nations will bow to the Lord. So first of all, the Lord humbles the pride of Israel's neighbors. It's a really unnerving thing when you find out someone heard something that you said that you did not intend for them to hear. That can be... uh, somewhat embarrassing at times. I remember when I was a a kid, I think I was in junior high, and I don't, uh, I'm not proud of anything I'm about to tell you. Uh, It kind of gives you a window into what kind of kid I was, but a classmate of mine had called me on the telephone and asked if I would uh, come to some event or go do something with him, and I didn't really have any interest in going and doing that or hanging out with this kid. So I took the phone and I put it against my chest, thinking that would mute or muffle the sound. And I asked my mom, please, to tell me that I couldn't go so that I could get back on the phone with this guy and tell him my parents said I can't. And I didn't have to tell him, well, I just don't want to. Well, it turns out, instead of acting as a mute or a muffle, uh, my chest cavity actually resonated everything I said. And the kid... um, When I got back on the phone and I tried to start telling him um, that I couldn't because my parents said no, he said, uh, he, he, he told me right up front, I heard everything you said, I get it, it's okay, thanks anyway. And I felt like about that big. Because when someone hears something you didn't intend for them to hear, especially if it's not very nice, the result is embarrassment, hurt feelings, damaged relationships, animosity, you name it. It goes on and on. Well, God, who hears everything, had heard the words of Moab and the words of Ammon. Maybe they didn't realize God could hear them, but He can and He does. Moab had been taunting the Lord's people what the text tells us. The people of Ammon had been reviling God's people, boasting against them, boasting against their land, and saying things like, wouldn't it be great if someone came and conquered Israel, and then we can take all that territory? And they're hoping for that. But the problem is God heard what they were saying. And the result of that, at least for Moab and for Ammon, was going to be absolute, total destruction. (coughs) He says, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts. Do you see that in the text? 
verse 9, as I live. That expression and that little phrase might have kind of a familiar ring to it. But actually, if you do a phrase, if you search for that phrase in the Old Testament scriptures, it's not a very common phrase, really. You don't hear God saying that too very often. And, and it's probably for our sake and for the sake of the people of the earth, it's probably a good thing. Because <clears throat> usually when God warns people, especially when he warns his own covenant people through his prophets, his warnings aren't intended to be mean. They're intended to be gracious. They are intended to call people to repentance. But when God says, as I live, he's telling Moab and he's telling Ammon, there's no, there's no room for repentance for you anymore. That ship has already sailed. God says, as I live, and that means this is a certainty. And that certainty and the awesomeness of it is kind of heightened by the fact that God uses this title, Lord of Hosts. God has many titles, He has many names that we find in the Scriptures, but this one, Lord of Hosts, is one of the most majestic of them all. And it depicts God, it portrays Him as a leader of armies, possibly the leaders, leader of the, the, the commander of the the hosts of heaven, all the legions of angels, or perhaps the hosts of his people. Certainly, both apply. He is the commander of the armies of Israel, and he's the commander of the armies of heaven. And he's saying, as I live, says the Lord God, Sabaoth, this is going to happen. What? Moab and Ammon are going to be utterly devastated. Like the cities of the plain. Look at verse 9. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab <clears throat> shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah. This shall be their lot, God says. That's their destiny. That's what they're bound for. And it's going to be the reward of their wickedness. So just like we read about in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, their pride, the pride of Moab, the pride of Ammon, is going to go before destruction. They had taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts, and the Lord of hosts heard it, and He's going to act. And then... We're told in the text that the remnant of God's people were going to plunder and possess the land of the people of Moab and the people of Ammon. And that's very interesting and, and noteworthy because when Israel inhabited the land of Canaan, when they came out in the Exodus from Egypt and they traveled through the wilderness and God gave them the land that so long ago He had promised to Abraham and to his descendants, God told the Israelites that the land of Moab was off limits. They couldn't go there. They were not to take any of it. None of that, none of that land or territory was going to be given them. And that's what Moses told them in Deuteronomy 2. Verse 9, he says, And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. Ar is, the name of the, is one name for the territory. So Moab, and the territory of Moab, was off limits. And the same was true 
for the land of the people of Ammon. Further on in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 19, it says, And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. However, because of their pride, because of their taunting, because of their reviling, the people of Moab and the people of Ammon were going to forfeit their inheritance. They were going to forfeit their possession. And that possession would fall to the remnant of God's people. That word remnant is is worth a a study in and of itself, Uh, but we don't have time for that tonight. The the remnant of my people, it says at the end of verse 9, the remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. So just real briefly as an introduction to that concept, God has always had a people, but as we see from the history of Israel in particular, there was a tremendous amount of unfaithfulness and covenant breaking amongst God's people. But always, throughout history, God had a faithful remnant among the people of Israel. God, says, God is saying, those faithful, the remnant, they're going to possess the land of Ammon and the land of Moab. <coughs> and so the, the, the possession, the territory, the inheritance of Israel is expanding in that sense. Now, before we move on to the second point, we see that the Lord humbles the pride of Israel's neighbors. He heard the taunting of Moab. He was aware of it. It wasn't hidden from him. He heard the taunts and the reviling of Ammon. And God hears, even in our day, the taunts that wicked people make against his people, that wicked people make against the church. He hears, and he will act. Well, the Lord not only humbles the pride of Israel's neighbors, he humbles the pride of what I described in the outline as superpowers. Now, in the modern world, when we speak of a global superpower, we're talking about a nation that has a dominant position in world affairs, a dominant influence in global affairs. And, you know, different people will say different things about how many superpowers are there presently in the world and which are they. But um, when the Soviet Union fell, when it uh, disintegrated, uh, there were some commentators and uh, analysts who made the observation that at that point, with the demise of the Soviet Union, that the United States was the lone superpower in the world. And that is, that's a point perhaps you could argue, but since that time, China has emerged and Russia has reemerged as military peers to the United States and also economic forces that are on a par or perhaps even in some respects surpassing the United States. Well, in the ancient world, they didn't have what we would call global superpowers. But in terms of the known world, there were mighty nations. Different ones were dominant at different points in history. If we go all the way back to the earliest accounts in biblical history, 
Egypt, of course, was the great nation of the world in the earliest days. By the time David became king in Israel and established himself in the monarchy, we could almost, we could almost argue that Israel was the great superpower of the ancient world. And that continued under Solomon. Well, <clears throat> then when the kingdom divided and what was one great single nation split into two, neither of which was uh, anywhere near as powerful as the United Kingdom under David, uh, Egypt began to regain prominence, and the big one was Assyria. And so by the time that Zephaniah is writing, Assyria is the world power, the superpower of the ancient Near East, the Mediterranean world. So before the Roman Empire ever came along, before the Greeks, before the Persians or the Babylonians, you had the Assyrians. And in fact, when Zephaniah was prophesying, the northern kingdom had already been destroyed by Assyria. And already the people, the remnant of the northern kingdom, had been carried away into exile. <clears throat> and I offer that brief uh, history lesson to point out that after addressing Israel's neighbors, the Lord God, through His prophet, turns His attention to the great powers of the day. He mentions a couple of them. He mentions the Cushites. Look with me at verse 12. Just a short little couplet there, a little um, yeah, a couplet. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. Cush was a part of ancient Egypt, the southern portion of it. Sometimes the name Cush is substituted for or used to, um, to uh, speak of, the, of Egypt, kind of a nickname for Egypt in some cases. And you see how the verse begins, you also, O Cushites. Because perhaps the Cushites could sit down there and think, all right, if the Lord of hosts, if the God of the Israelites is going to knock off these nations that are immediately surrounding Israel, that's fine. He can't touch us. Because again, Egypt is re-emerging as a great power. And God's saying to Egypt, to Cush, you also. I'm coming to get you. And then he turns his sights to Assyria. They were the great power. <clears throat> And God says He's going to make Nineveh a waste. You remember, of course, Nineveh is the capital city of the entire Assyrian Empire by this time. A powerful, walled city. A fortress city. And the, the capital of the mightiest nation on earth. The mightiest empire on earth at the time. And God is saying it's going to become a waste. It's going to become desolate. It's going to be a dwelling place not of human beings, but of wild animals. And just as with Moab and Ammon, God condemns the Assyrians' pride. Look at verse 15 again. This is the exultant city. The city that was boasting. The city that was bragging. The city that was engaged in this ancient Near Eastern trash talk about how great it was and how everybody else was subordinate to them. I am, and there is no other. God's saying He is going to humble them. God's saying He's going to destroy them and the other nations are going to mock them. They're going to shake their fists. They're going to hiss when they pass by. <clears throat> now, 
Historically speaking, God did exactly that. He destroyed Assyria. And very few in the days of Zephaniah would ever have dreamed that that could even happen, that it could even be possible that the mighty Assyrian Empire could somehow fall, that it could somehow be defeated. But God did it. He's able to do that, you know. He's able to defeat superpowers. He was back then, and He is now. So God is able to humble and bring down China. God is able to humble and defeat and bring down Russia. He's able to humble the United States of America too, if He so chooses. And I can't imagine any reason why He wouldn't. Well, finally, we see that all gods and nations will bow to the Lord. Look with me one more time at verse 11. And of all that, you know, we've been going through the minor prophets. We've seen some wonderful nuggets of uh, really inspiring and uplifting verses, uh, different places in the, in the minor prophets. I think of, in all the minor prophets, this is one of my very favorite verses of all. Verse 11 of Zephaniah 2. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the nations, all the lands of the nations. <clears throat> God did awesome things in his dealings with people, the people of Israel when he brought them out of exile, when, excuse me, when he brought them out of bondage in Egypt, in the Exodus. He did mighty things. He, he wrought those awesome plagues, and he parted the Red Sea. And then as they traveled through the wilderness, he did awesome things for them. And then in their conquest of the promised land, God did tremendous wonders. He was awesome against those nations that he was using his people to judge. And I think if we were honest with ourselves, we'd have to admit we we desire to see God do awesome things, don't we? God's people in every age do. We want to see God act. We want to see His power at work among us and in our behalf. And this verse, brothers and sisters, verse 11, is a word of encouragement for all of you. It's a word of encouragement for all of God's people in every age. It's a reminder. It's an assurance for us. It assures us that God will act powerfully against all of His and our enemies. It assures us of that. And it's a reminder. It reminds us that our God is an awesome God. He's awesome even when He's patiently waiting and bearing with the wicked. He's an awesome God even when it seems to us as if He's not at work, as if He's not paying attention. Our God is an awesome God. So let me ask you, are you impatient today? to see the Lord take action? Are you impatient to see the Lord work, to see Him do something mighty? Then I would direct you back to Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 3, where God says through the prophet, if it seems slow, wait for it. Wait for it. It will surely come. Lay hold of those words. We may well see mighty acts of judgment in our own day. 
We may. We may see mighty acts of sovereign mercy in our day, and I hope we do. We may see revival in our day. Pray for that. Because that's one of the awesome works of God too, isn't it? Isn't it an awesome and mighty work of God when a person who's dead in sins and trespasses is raised to life in Jesus Christ? Yes, that's a miracle. And that's God being God. That's God being awesome. But we don't really know what we'll see in this life, whether we'll see awesome acts of judgment, whether we'll see mighty revival in our day. We don't know. We may. But I can promise you this. We will see glorious, awesome things. We will see the glorious, awesome work of God and the power of God at the last day. The true and living God, the text says, will famish all the false gods of the nations. The Hebrew word there that's translated famish in the ESV is it really means to make lean, to make lean, to make skinny, to cause to waste away. In other words, to make weak. So if you can imagine a person who's suffering from starvation, on the brink of dying of hunger, that's a description of what God is going to do, our God, the true and living God, what he's going to do to all the gods of the earth. And that verb then in the Hebrew is in the perfect tense. So once again, it's an assurance to us. It's a promise. It's a guarantee that God will do it. He'll famish all the gods of the, of the nations and every knee shall bow to him. It says all nations shall bow, each in its place. And I think that's the significant um, phrase there. To him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. The gods of the ancient world, the false gods, I mean, they were often thought of or, or um, seen as kind of geographically bound. They had turf. They had their own territory, and they were strong in their own territory. So the gods of the Moabites were, were conceived of as being powerful in the land of Moab, maybe not so much in other places. But they were territorial gods, kind of like mob bosses who have different sectors of the city, and they're, they're kind of the boss over that area. And um, <clears throat> what gets uh, really uh, embarrassing and humiliating for the people of the nations is when they start to think of the God of Israel that way. It's like in uh, 1 Kings chapter 20. Israel, under King Ahab, uh, is at war with Syria, and God gives Israel a great victory over the Syrians, and then the Syrians go back and they say to their king, your majesty, I think we've got it figured out. See, the gods of the Israelites are gods of the hills, but if we fight them on the plain, then we'll get them. And Yahweh says, oh, you think I'm only a god of the hills? Well, let me show you something. And then they go to war again, and Israel annihilates Syria on the plain. Because the God of the Bible is not a God of one place or of one kind of terrain. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And so this is a display of God's power. He's saying, I'm going to subdue you and I'm going to subdue your gods. Each one of you is going to bow down in your place. I don't have to draw you out. 
I will subdue you right where you are, on your home field, in your place of perceived power. And they will bow when they do to Jesus. I know this is Old Testament, but the truth of the Bible is when the nations bow down, they will bow down to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has been given as his inheritance the nations. The day will come when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. And when that day comes, every knee shall bow to him. That phrase is quoted out of Isaiah, but it's, uh, we find it in Romans chapter 14. We find it in Philippians 2, and they both picture all peoples of the earth, the living and the dead, bowing down to Christ. Some of them will bow down as vanquished foes, defeated enemies, the people that he will break with a rod of iron, the way a potter dashes in pieces a vessel. But some will bow down as redeemed souls. Some will bow down as those who have been won to him through his redeeming love. And that's gospel hope for us because when the scriptures speak of people bowing down, in Isaiah 45, starting in verse 22, God himself says, Turn to me and be saved, all ends of the earth. Turn to me and be saved. Don't be shattered. Don't be crushed. Don't be destroyed. Turn to me and be saved, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. So you see, everyone is going to bow to our God. Everyone. Either as a willing subject or else as a condemned enemy. And to you this day, that choice is given. Choose life. Well, as we close, I want to make a few applications that I think are important and I hope will be relevant, because you might think, okay, what does this have to do with me? Well, here's what it has to do with you. First of all, God takes notice of mankind. He sees. He hears. He knows your heart. Our God heard the taunts of Moab, and he hears yours as well. Nothing is hidden from him. He beholds all the unrighteous deeds of every person on earth. And if you want to know how he feels about those unrighteous deeds, you need look no further than the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Go back and read the account of what happened to the cities on the plain. That illustrates God's attitude toward and his view of sin. And in the day of judgment, all sinners will become like them. Secondly, the gods, and I'll use the air quotes there, the gods of the world will be utterly overthrown by the true and living God, by Yahweh. And so will all who worship them. So stop seeking refuge in lesser things. Stop seeking refuge in gods that are not gods. Now, someone will, will say, especially in our modern era, well, I don't worship any god. People will tell you that. They'll say, I'm not religious at all. So I'm not really subject to anything you're talking about here. 
Well, the fact is, they are religious. Everyone's religious. Everyone has a religion, and everyone has a God. And if you continue to object, I'll say, show me your calendar, show me your budget, and show me your bank statement, and I'll show you your God's. In other words, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, reveals what you worship. And Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty, is going to destroy your gods. They won't be able to deliver you. So if you're worshiping and serving anything other than Him, turn from them. They can't save you. Finally, Jesus Christ is the conquering King. I'm assuming that last week you read Revelation 19 in the evening worship service. Jesus is the awesome one who will trample all the gods of the earth. He will overcome all the wicked of the earth. He's the one that Revelation 19 described, the one on the white horse, whose name was faithful and true, with the sharp sword coming out of his mouth to destroy the nations, to judge the nations. You know, Jesus as he's popularly represented, as he's popularly perceived, might not seem very impressive to people. He might not seem like someone that we have to reckon with. He might not seem like much of a threat to anyone. He's gentle Jesus. He's meek and mild, humble, weak, dying on a cross, Well, yes, he did die on a cross, but he rose on the third day, triumphant over sin and over the grave and over death. He was raised up victorious. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. He is the King of kings. He's the one that's spoken of in Psalm 2, the one who's given the scepter of iron, the glorious Son of God. He's the rider described in Revelation 19, and he demands allegiance. He demands your worship. He demands your obedience. But you know the astounding truth of the gospel is that awesome one, that rider on the white horse, that one seated at the right hand of the Father with the iron scepter in his hand, that Christ offers terms of peace to rebels like you and me. He's the one who says to you today, turn to me and be saved, for I am God and there is no other. Let's pray. Thank you, Father in heaven, for offering terms of peace to rebels. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, and we look forward to the day when he will be awesome against all the gods of the earth. May he come again soon. But before he does, Lord, we pray you'd continue to draw many to yourself. Continue to do the gracious work of your gospel here and throughout the earth, and let Jesus Christ receive all the glory, for we pray in his name. Amen.